Let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, as tonight we uh, will read verses 8 through 15, though we won't make our way through the whole of it uh, this week, last week, uh, in uh, the first seven verses, we saw that the issue uh, had turned to public prayer and God's heart, and how His heart should shape our heart in public prayer. Um, Our praying should be as broad as God's heart is for the world. So we pray, Paul says, for all kinds of people, even for kings. Uh, We should pray for Jews and Gentiles. We should pray for Americans and Africans and Asians and Australians and Arabs, among others. Why? Because God desires all kinds of people, not some kinds of people, to be saved. Tonight, we are invited, as Paul continues the theme of public prayer, we are invited to consider uh, public worship together in our prayers and God's intention for males and females as we gather together in community. Our roles, even, uh, as men and women. Now, we'll read all of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, as I said, verses 8 through 15, But we'll save a portion of it, beginning at verse 11, for our study next week. But it all hangs together, though it it easily can be worked into a couple of studies. And and the second half may raise more questions for you uh, than the first half. And this will give you a week to think about some of those things. I hope we'll address some of those next week. Uh, In our public assembly, then... In God's church, how are we to behave? What are we to do and what are we not to do, especially as men and women? So let me invite you to hear the word of God then. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts by it. Let's look to him in prayer. We pray that you would lead us and guide us, O Lord, be our teacher, grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Honor the Lord Jesus among us and mature us uh, in our role in your church. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Well, perhaps you've already discovered why I'm putting off the second half till next week. (laughs) 
this is uh, no uncontroversial text before us, is it? Uh, certainly not. Not in our day, certainly. And uh, there, it, it may raise all kinds of questions. Some can perhaps hardly even believe that's in the Bible or that we bothered to read such a thing. Uh, others of you uh, know that it's in the Bible and it's important, but, but what, what does it mean for us in our day? And you have questions about that. And I understand those things, and not that I'm your answer man for every question you have. I have questions myself. We're going to hold a portion of this till next week, but let me make some preliminary comments about the whole passage before we look at verses 8 through 10. Five preliminary comments. Uh, first, some of you may be fairly new to Redeemer. Uh, maybe you're even just visiting, uh, and it might be helpful for you to know that our approach to the Bible is what's called expository, meaning our usual practice is to work our way through books of the Bible, trying to w- read them in the way that they were first heard and meant to be heard by the author of those books. Uh, there are a lot of advantages to that. I, it means I don't, as the pastor here, just get to harp on my favorite passages and hobby horses and pet doctrines, and thereby subtly over time shaping our community after my image and my priorities. It forces all of us at times also to deal with texts we might rather prefer to ignore, and it helps us hopefully to read the Bible in the way that it was intended to be read. Now, second, as Philip Jensen observes, there is a trend in some parts of the church that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and I am not ashamed of Jesus, but I am embarrassed and terribly ashamed by the Apostle Paul. That's common among certain churches in our day, as if what Paul wrote was somehow less inspired than the rest of Scripture, as if as if some parts of the Bible are authoritative and some parts of the Bible aren't, and we can really just accept those parts or ignore those parts as we decide because it really doesn't matter. But we cannot do that with the Bible. We can't simply dismiss the, uh, the Apostle Paul any more than we can dismiss the words of Jesus for to be an apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which the apostles were, They are giving us exactly what our Lord and our God, our Savior Jesus, wants his church to hear. Paul is not veering off into his own preferences and opinions here. Whatever it is, he really means by these things. Now third, as the Apostle Paul closes chapter 2, you notice at the end of the paragraph, which we'll look at in greater detail next week, he has in mind Adam and Eve and what they were created for in verse 13. He talks about Adam being made first. He then at verse 14 has in mind their sin, the great fall, and how it has warped them. He speaks of, of uh, Eve's transgression and, or deception. And, and he has in mind, though not just creation and fall, he has in mind redemption. He has in mind how God intends to reshape his people to live in his household and um, walk after his image. So creation, fall, and redemption are at work here, and we'll come back to that this week and next week. But fourthly, did you notice that verse 8 is specifically directed to men and verses 9 through 15 at women? One verse for men, seven for women. You might 
ask, not unreasonably, isn't that unfair? <laughs> is, is Paul just harping on or against women here and kind of just brushing past the men quickly? Well, no, this isn't unfair, uh, not unless you wish to say that Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, speaking of husbands and wives, is being unfair in the reverse direction when he gives triple the amount of space to the responsibility of husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and a third of that amount of space to the wives in their relationship to their husbands. It's, it's not the case that just because he said more means uh, that he's uh, against one uh, over the other, or for one over the other, or doesn't take seriously the problems of one over the other. He's simply addressing distinctive pastoral issues in distinctive places in the Bible, as by the Holy Spirit he is led to do so. Um, pastoral issues that are brought up because of the, t- the weaknesses and the temptations of fallen and redeemed men and women. So uh, he's not being unfair here. And in the fifth place, um, by way of preliminary uh, points, what we do in public worship is not up to us. It's up to God. That's why God speaks about it to us in the Bible. Uh, that's a lesson that isn't new in the New Testament. Uh, the Jews, since Leviticus was written, uh, have had a, an entire book about what's acceptable and not acceptable and what men and women should or should not do in worship. And it goes farther back than that to even the offerings of Cain and Abel where one was acceptable to God and one was not. And uh, so God decides what is acceptable to him, what he desires for us, what's, what's in the interest of our well-being as people and as a community, as well as what honors and glorifies him. He tells us that. It's not simply up to us to decide that. Now, what then in this passage is he telling us? Two big things. And here's your outline. Verse 8, men are to pray. In public worship, when we gather together. And verses 9 and 10, women are to adorn themselves and come to that public worship adorned. We'll think about those two things. Verse 8, men are to pray. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me make a number of points about this. The first thing to note is that this phrase, I desire, does not mean Paul is saying, um, well, this is really just my suggestion for the church at Ephesus, Timothy. You just pass that along and see what they do with it. It is rather expressing, as one put it, an apostolic demand in the language of personal desire. I want men to pray. He is commanding men to do. And there is a word here as well about posture. Let's just say a brief word about that. I want them to lift up holy hands, he says. Now, that was the practice of Jews in the synagogue in that day. They would stand praying with palms lifted to the Lord. That's one of many postures of prayer 
commended to us in the Bible. It's not the only required posture. You could pray standing, sitting, kneeling, flat on the face with your forehead to the ground. You can pray with your eyes open or your eyes closed, etc. There's lots of different commendable ways to pray, perhaps appropriate to different kinds of occasions. This text is one reason why if you have your eyes open when we pray, and that's fine, when I uh, ordinarily um, offer the opening prayer of adoration to the Lord, I lift my hands. It's a commendable practice, and Paul urges it here. But all of these postures are secondary here, I think, to his main concern. In other words, yes, lift up holy hands in prayer, but the point isn't the posture so much as what is happening and that the men are involved in it. In fact, if, if there is a huge concern here for posture, it's not so much the external posture of the hands raised as much as the, the disposition of the heart of the one praying. We'll look at that. But uh, let me also say this. Notice that he says pointedly, men should pray. He's not using a generic word which was available to him for people in general that is sometimes translated in the Bible, men, but, but meaning men and women or mankind. There's a word for that. He's not using that word. He's not saying people should pray. He's, he's pointedly using the word for male people. Uh, male humans here are to pray. Now let's pause there and let me say this. I do not believe that that means he is thereby prohibiting women praying in worship. That's not his point. He isn't addressing the women here. He's addressing the men. I hope, as your pastor, women are praying in worship. Why do I say that? They ought to be for a variety of reasons. For instance, even when one person is praying out loud and, and in our worship service as it is currently constructed. We normally have one pray at a time and today typically it is your pastor. That's how we've chosen to do it. We could easily have a worship service where we gave space for lots of people to pray if, uh, if we needed or wanted to do that. But when one person is praying, it's not as though that's the only person talking to God and everybody else is just kind of tuning out, zoning out. I know that happens. Don't misunderstand. I've done it plenty of times myself. But I hope that our men and our women, our boys and our girls are saying, Amen. Lord, I agree with this prayer. Lord, make it so. We're all praying, certainly from the heart and with the mind, I hope. We, 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 we're encouraged, and women included. But also, let me say this. We here at Redeemer have a practice, uh, typically of confessing our sins together, and we often pray that prayer corporately together, men and women praying out loud in worship. Uh, women, this is not a text saying you are prohibited from that. And uh, likewise, let me add just one more note. Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, when the disciples gathered together, the apostles were there, uh, the disciples were there, they gathered to pray and it pointedly said that they were praying together and the women disciples were there. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. They were praying together. So this is not, I, I don't believe, a prohibition of women praying in the public assembly of God's people. That's not the point. 
His point is men ought to pray and are commanded to pray. And I think he's addressing the men very pointedly here because of at least two sins men are prone to. I certainly discover them in my own heart on different occasions. One, abdication, and two, abuse. First, he's saying, men, don't be passive. Don't leave such important responsibilities simply to others. Don't abdicate. And uh, we might say there are various reasons for that. Don't falsely imagine you are self-reliant and have no need of Jesus. And don't come to worship unconcerned for others, but bring them to the Lord in prayer. (laughs) Have a heart for others. Don't leave that heart for others to be concerned about. And uh, let me say this, as a, as a pastoral matter on this issue, I, I've never had a wife come to me and complain that her husband prays too much for her or prays too often with her for she and the children. I, I've never had a wife complain that her husband suggests that they pray together. It simply has never happened in my experience. Well, so too in the assembly of God, men are to pray And not just leave this important work to women. Secondly, or another major point, Paul here uh, addresses not just, I think, the sin of passivity, the sin of abdication, but the sin of abuse. Um, I I use that word, it's alliterative, abdication and abuse. he, He says, notice his language, to lift up holy hands um, and not, not with anger and quarreling. As Philip Jensen puts it, fighting is a very male way of doing things. Women do it too, of course, but men much more frequently and much more programmatically, men tend to resort to fighting, violence, and warfare much more quickly than do women. I mean, pick up any history book, Jensen goes on to say. Pick up any history book and you'll see that it's men who have a great capacity for losing their tempers, for solving their problems by anger, by fighting in order to get their way. That often is how men are. It's not right. It's not godly, but it's what often happens. And so Paul has to say, I want you to pray. But when you pray, men, I don't want you to, I don't want you to engage in your battle against other people when you're praying. I want you to pray without anger. Without quarreling. Because men are so tempted to, you remember chapter 1, it's about false teaching, false teachers, some people need to be rebuked. Men are so tempted to, to, to even argue their case to others while supposedly they're talking to God. And Paul says, I don't want you to preach, I want you to pray. And, and so, I, you know, just as in your home when you pray, If you're married and men, if you're talking to God, talk to God and don't use that as a way to command your wife or criticize uh, your children by cloaking it as, well, we're going to talk to God about this. Paul says don't do that. Uh, So let me just bring this portion to a close by, by asking this question of us men. Men, do we have... Well, we do have, we do have great energy for other things. We have great energy for perhaps our work, uh, various personal interests, uh, maybe our hobbies. 
And those are okay. You know? Do we also have energy for, or do we have very little energy for, spiritual matters? It's not okay if we don't. And all too often, when we look around the church, and I don't just mean Redeemer, you look around the church across the world, we find that it is often women, very godly, faithful women for whom we praise God, that they often do a large part of the work of the church. And they carry the burden of many things. And all too often, they do so alone. And Paul says, men, I want you to pray and bring the cares of other people before my throne. So may it, may it never be this way here at Redeemer. We ought to be as men the first to pray. And I don't mean, you know, first as opposed to second. That You always have to be the one who, who starts and your wife finishes. Or in, you know, when we pray together that it has to go. I mean first the one who says this is vitally important. Who, who reminds us we have got to pray for people. Uh, and lead by uh, example then in our praying. And isn't it ironic then? Isn't it ironic? That our help in fighting the temptation to be proudly self-reliant and self-sufficient and neglectful and uncaring or even abusive in our prayers. Isn't it ironic that our help is to be found in God answering this prayer? Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And so Paul says men should pray. Now the second thing is this, verses 9 and 10. He says women are to adorn themselves. Likewise, verse 9, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What is he saying? In the public gatherings, the women who worship and pray should not do so in such a way to draw attention to themselves, but to point others to God. Do this by adorning yourself, Paul says. He doesn't forbid adornment. He commands adornment. Now, what does it mean to adorn something? It means to beautify it, to make it appealing. She is to make herself more beautiful, even allow her beauty to shine. Now, how is she to do that, Paul says? Both by what she wears and by what she does, by her clothing and her conduct. Notice verse first clothing. Let them adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. There is Paul is reminding us there is clothing appropriate, we might say, uh, on a tennis court, uh, clothing that might be appropriate at the beach, clothing that might be appropriate in the bedroom, that simply isn't appropriate clothing, in a public assembly of God's people worshiping him. And he says, adorn yourself but not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly clothing. Now, If you were to look at sculptures made during the time period that this was written, and if you were to read the literature that was also being written at the same time as Paul's letters, you would discover that at Ephesus, 
Uh, fashion was an important matter to people. Uh, maybe fashion has always been of importance to people since Adam and Eve needed fig leaves to cover themselves. And uh, one of the ways that the people at Ephesus to whom Timothy is ministering and Paul is writing, one of the ways that they emphasized their fashion was, uh, was around the way that they wore their hair. Well-to-do ladies would pile up their hair in, in braids, uh, lifting it higher and higher into almost like towering sculptures. And then uh, those with means would take uh, ornaments of, of gold and uh, uh, pearls and other costly items and, and, and place those in the hair. And um, they weren't the only people who did that. There is evidence that temple prostitutes wore their hair in similar but obviously somewhat different ways according to their different role and status in society and what they aim to do. And Paul is saying rather than simply imitating the extravagance of the rich or imitating the immodesty of temple prostitutes, the women here in Ephesus in the body of Christ are to uh, exercise restraint and moderation to dress with decency and propriety as somebody who loves Jesus. Don't, in other words, don't adorn your body in order to have other people marvel at you. But come to worship adorned in such a way that people will marvel at Jesus. Let that be your heart. And you do that by making the gospel look attractive, by making Jesus look attractive, by being remade after his image, by reflecting his glory, and you manifest that visibly, in part, by being modest, and by good works, by the works of love, of neighbor love, of loving service to other people. That should be your adornment that makes Jesus seem beautiful. Because it does. Now, is Paul saying, you have to ask this question, does Paul mean that women can never, ever, ever, ever wear any gold or any pearl ever in public worship? Perhaps some of you began to look around to see, what, what, what is my wedding ring? You know, is it gold or what? Is, is Paul saying, well, look, you can wear that wedding ring if it's made of silver, but not if it's made of gold. You know, as one uh, preacher put it, before I answer that question, he said, you, before you answer that question, it's helpful at this stage to stop and do a bit of a heart check. The thing you have to ask yourself and keep asking yourself is, what do I intend to do with what the Bible says? Are you, we should ask ourselves, really prepared to do what the Bible says and to live according to its principles? We need to ask that question because if we're not prepared to do what the Bible says, then we might as well throw the Bible out. If we're not going to respond to the things, uh, or if we're only going to respond to the things that sit well with us, and throw out the things that don't sit well with us, then we might as well have written the Bible ourselves, right? So what do you do, what do you intend to do with what the Bible says? Whatever your answer to this question, does Paul mean, look, all gold and pearls are excluded, but, you know, silver and other things are fine? However you ask that question, what do you intend to do with that? Do you intend to live in accordance with it? Now, we should ask, is this in fact what Paul means? And I do not believe so. I do not believe that this is an absolute prohibition 
within a very narrow category of things. But I believe it's a relative prohibition across a broad spectrum of category of things. What do I mean by that? I don't believe Paul is saying you could never, ever, ever wear any gold whatsoever in a public assembly of the church. But of course you can wear silver as much as you want. Pile it high, ladies. Now look, he doesn't mention silver. He doesn't command explicitly against it. Or for that matter, other costly metals or jewels other than pearls. And come come back to his point about braids. Is he saying no braids whatsoever, ever, ever? But of course, you know, hats with uh, peacock plumes would be just fine in your head. I mean, you see, these, I believe, Paul emphasizes as examples, because they were very common at Ephesus, of a large number of ways we can transgress against modesty and uh, transgress against flamboyance, and he's critiquing that. Sparkle and glitter, showing off, even seductive clothing. All these things that promote the self, but are not self-control. These things that are about grabbing the attention, perhaps, of men, or uh, are ways of being in competition to outshine other women. Paul is commanding against a lot of comparing and contrasting oneself with other women against a lot of envy and pride, which would undoubtedly sometimes include uh, feeling very bad about oneself or one's body or one's size and shape and curves and beauty or lack thereof or our perceived lack thereof. He's commanding against this self-centered attention to self that then displays that self to invite the eyes of others. So he's really dealing here with heart issues as much as behavioral issues. He's addressing the fallen heart of even redeemed women, just as he addressed the fallen heart of even redeemed men, prone to passivity, abdication, abuse. So here, women who are battling the temptation to be more concerned for how they look than how others are doing and how they can help those others. People here who are more concerned for how males are responding to them than for how they can serve Jesus out of love for him. So Paul says, adorn yourself, but don't do it sensationally or seductively, but in a different way, with modesty and with good works. Proverbs says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. Proverbs is right. There is nothing more attractive, if I may say so, my dear sisters. There's nothing more attractive than a woman who loves Jesus and loves other people self-sacrificially. Who's eager to do good. In doing so, she reflects the heart of her Savior who came to do even sinners good. Now, in saying all of this, we've got to be careful we don't slip into legalism. 
Paul is not endorsing drabness, as one commentator put it. I don't think he's saying, women, you should dress in potato sacks and burlap bags. Try to be as frumpy as possible. That, of course, is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that there is anything necessarily wrong with dressing nicely or putting your best foot forward or wearing stylish clothing. Certainly there's freedom here for Christian women to appreciate the culture in which they live, what's modest in my community, what's expensive or not in my community. Those are very cultural and relative ideas. But as in other places in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 8, don't use your freedom to destroy another brother or sister in Christ or cause them to stumble. So let me just conclude by asking this question for all of us. Where is our heart? Our behavior reflects our heart. Paul says men are to pray without pretending and without showing off or one-upping one another or fighting their battles. They are to pray and take responsibility for the well-being of others before the throne of grace in prayer. And women, well, they are not to grasp for attention or compete with one another, but they also are to care for others and their well-being by doing them good and by dressing in a modest way. And we all fail or have failed or might in the future fail at these things. Because we, though we are created for God's glory, we are fallen and we fall short of God's glory. But though men abdicate or abuse their responsibilities and though women grasp for attention instead of doing good works, these are the very reasons Jesus came. He died for these sins, for the sins of Men and women who do these very sort of things. This is the good news. And as our Savior, if He's our Savior, He wants us to be shaped by His heart. He wants to shape our heart that in His household we might live and behave and conduct ourselves for His glory and for the good of others. May the Lord make that so in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know exactly uh, how we fail or the temptations we are prone to and certainly the ways that we love ourselves instead of loving others forgive us all these sins we pray that the love of Jesus for us would make us to be more loving to one another out of a desire to glorify you make it so Lord in Jesus name Amen